If you have a Bible, I want to turn, uh, encourage you to turn to uh, Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read uh, just a selection there from Galatians 5. So if you kind of go all the way to the right and then turn left a couple books, you'll run right into Galatians. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. We're going to read in verse 6 and then verses 13 to 23. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then going down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, we're moving out of Revelation and out of Lent and into Eastertide, and we're picking back up this theme that we have been tra- uh, kind of tracking on for the year. We're calling this uh, the year of wholeheartedness, and this started for us back in August. And remember, we said uh, wholeheartedness is about learning to become disciples or apprentices of Jesus who experience God's transforming love and then learn to love others well because we've been loved well. And so we want to get back to that and finish that out over the next couple months. We're going to do a series here for the next couple of weeks uh, through the end of May on the fruit of the Spirit. And in the summer, we're actually going to look at wholeheartedness in our vocations, in the various uh, spheres in which God calls us to live uh, in in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so um, if you uh, remember, I'm sure all of you guys remember all my sermons, but last summer... Uh, I actually did, when we we were doing a a series on the Holy Spirit, I did a message on the fruit of the Spirit, and that is kind of the introduction. So I want to encourage you, I'm not going to revisit all of that here, the larger context is there. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, Hannah and I also did a podcast this week kind of introing uh, the fruit of the Spirit and the natural world and all the agricultural uh, kind of natural metaphors. Uh, So again, I would commend that to you. Uh, but just real quickly, let me just remind you what this book is about uh, before we jump in and talk about um, love. Uh, the, 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 the Galatia is essentially the, it's a cluster of urban churches that are in southern Galatia, that, um, this region that the Apostle Paul planted. He started these churches on one of his missionary journeys. So Paul comes to know Jesus, and then he goes and he becomes the apostle to uh, ethnically non-Jewish Jewish, uh, Gentiles. And that's his primary focus 
in, uh, in his ministry. And this community experienced some incredible stuff. Like Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, these powerful, miraculous encounters that they had with the Holy Spirit. So this is a, a, a kind of a charismatic, lowercase c community. And, and what happens after Paul starts this church and he leaves, uh, because they were Gentiles, they were not ethnically Jewish, there were uh, Jewish false teachers who began to come into this community and tell them, yeah, you've believed the good news about Jesus, but it's Jesus plus these other things. They told them they needed to obey specifically the law of Moses and become proselytes to the Torah. In other words, they needed to begin to obey the Torah in terms of circumcision, which you can imagine they were not excited about that, uh, food laws, and Sabbath. Those were kind of the core uh, kind of principles there that they were expected to obey under the law of Moses, even as followers of Jesus. So Paul writes this letter as a response to this teaching that's beginning to infiltrate. And the primary message of the book of Galatians is found in chapter five. You are free. This is a book about liberation from external rites or uh, external religious rituals, kind of a performance-driven spirituality. Jesus plus anything else. Paul says there's no plus. It's just Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit now lives in you, the Spirit of Christ, he talks about the Spirit of Christ, lives in you, you now are free from those expectations of the law. But as he says that, he immediately then begins to warn them, don't use your freedom. So this is, this is different than the way we think about freedom as Americans. We think about freedom as Americans as freedom from. Paul says, yes, there is a freedom from the law, but that's not all freedom is about. In the Bible, freedom is also a freedom towards. It's a freedom to worship God. It's a freedom to live a certain kind of way. And it's a freedom that is always circumscribed by greater obligations to God and to other people. And so he, he says, you're free, but it's like, you know, some of your parents, you know, it's like you tell your kids, hey, no rules. Okay, that like sounds awesome for about five seconds. You're free, but as a parent, you're always going, but here's the house rules. And that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's saying, don't allow your newfound freedom to become justification for a life of either indifference toward other people or exploitation of other people. There was some fighting that was happening in the community. And so Paul says, watch out that you, you don't consume each other. You don't extract or take life from each other in the name of freedom or what we might call self-interest or selfishness or self-preoccupation. And so Paul then contrasts here in our passage in chapter five, two ways to live. Now that we're, fr now that we're free, and now that the spirit of Christ lives in us, we understand we're no longer under the law. He says there's two contrasting kind of operating systems for life. One is what he calls the flesh. And the flesh here, um, the word literally just means meat. But what Paul means uh, throughout the New Testament, is the flesh is kind of the stand-in for um, kind of disordered human desires that get normalized in a sinful society or a sinful culture. So it's kind of fallen human nature that then gets kind of uh, extrapolated out into our practices, into our institutions, and yes, even into the church. So Paul says that's one way to live. It's life apart from um, God. And then there's another way to live, the spirit. And, and the life in the spirit, Paul talks about here, is a reordered life. It's a life uh, where our desires and our longings are reordered uh, under the influence of the spirit within the countercultural community of Jesus. 
And what Paul says is the primary area of testing for how we know we're living in the flesh or living in the spirit, notice all the the language here in terms of flesh versus spirit. Most of these have to do with relationships, how we treat one another. The primary arena for understanding if we're living in the flesh or living in the spirit is not our own personal piety with God. It's actually horizontally how we are treating and interacting with one another. And one of the things that Paul wants to draw our attention to, I think, is um, how we're being formed into this life. So he's not just giving us a theology here. He's wanting us to be formed. That's the idea of bearing fruit, that these things internally would become manifest in our relationships with each other. And so one of the things we have to pay attention to as we think about this series and what we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to contrast how we're being formed kind of in the world, how we're being formed even within the church in ways that run counter to the way of Jesus. We are always being formed or deformed either towards the way of Jesus or away from the way of Jesus. And so one of the things we want to do in this series is we want to contrast what is the way of Jesus, what is the way of the Spirit with what is kind of the pattern of of the world. And by the world, I don't just mean like everything outside the church. I mean, the church is worldly too. What I mean to say is just by the systems and the structures and the practices and the habits and the institutions within which we live, how are we being formed or deformed? And so we're gonna set up this juxtaposition each week with here's here's kind of the contrast to this fruit and then here's what the fruit actually means. And so this week we're gonna look at that in terms of the contrast between self-giving love and self-interested love. self Giving love versus self-interested love. Philip Kinnison, uh, in his book on the fruit of the Spirit, has a great quote. I think this is really helpful in terms of being able to see this. He says, what is happening in many cases is that the church is simply cultivating at the center of its life the seeds that the dominant culture, that's that word for practices and institutions and habits that we've learned mostly unconsciously. We don't think about them. That's what he calls dominant culture, dominant narratives that we live in, dominant habits and practices and ways of being that we're so used to, they're so normal to us, but sometimes put us at odds with the way of Jesus. He says, we're cultivating the seeds that dominant culture has sown in its midst. As a result, the seeds that the spirit has sown are all but being choked out. He's using the analogy of the parable of the soils. And the fruit that is being brought to harvest has little or no likeness to the Spirit's fruit. Said another way, the church that is being cultivated in the United States looks suspiciously like the dominant culture rather than being an alternative to it. So we can say one thing with our theology and our beliefs and our doctrinal statements, but actually live another way. And so one of the things we want to look at and what we call this a culture, the idea of culture is looking at all the complex factors that go into forming the natural world. There's an ecosystem, right, that forms the natural world. And we have to pay attention to all those intersecting factors, all those complicating factors. If we're going to discern how we're not living in the way of Jesus, it's hard work. And so we have to become discerning about our practices, discerning about our dispositions, and those things that are, quote unquote, just the way life is. So that's what we want to talk about today, love in a culture of self-interest. So let's talk about a culture of self-interest. This would be um, kind of um, what Paul is referring to as, as the flesh. What does the flesh look like in our modern day in terms of self-interest? Now, this is, this is like trying to teach, uh, to talk about self-interest in America is like trying to talk to fish about water. 
it's, it's really interesting as I was studying and reflecting on our life uh, as an American church, uh, the American experiment, if you want to call it that, right? Like, because we're still kind of a pretty young society uh, in relationship to kind of major civilizations of the past. But it's interesting because even our society, American culture, American, America as an experiment is built on this tension between self-interest and the common welfare of society. And, and you can see this tension if you go back and read Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, the Founding Fathers, uh, Hamilton, John Adams, uh, right? Like this is the air that we breathe. And, and it's interesting, like when you think about it, we are a country that is structured in every way on this idea, and it was a novel idea, of collectively maximizing personal self-interest. You see that paradox? Collectively maximizing self-interest. This was actually, this is, we're structured this way politically. We're structured this way psychologically. We're structured this way economically. I mean, capitalism is built on this principle. We're structured, structured this way technologically. So you're like, okay, you're not a political philosopher. Okay, I'll, I'll quote one. Uh, Patrick Dean up at Notre Dame says this, the first revolution and the most basic and distinctive aspect of liberalism, and he's using liberalism here as the idea, basic idea of liberty in, in our constitution, is to base politics upon the idea of voluntarism, the unfettered and autonomous choice of individuals. So he's saying we've taken these kind of pre-modern ideas about liberty and dignity, and we've, we've made a, an anthropological shift. How we see human beings is not as interdependent beings, but rather as autonomous individuals. So there's a fundamental shift in how we see humanity that gets woven and baked into the American experiment from the beginning. And he says, this is not altogether new, but it was, it was a distortion. So he says, what he says, what was new is that the default basis for evaluating institutions, society, affiliations, memberships, and even personal relationships became dominated by considerations of individual choice based, and here it is, based on the calculation of individual self-interest. In other words, what's in it for me? Without broader consideration of the impact of one's choices upon the community, one's obligations to the created order, and ultimately to God. His core argument in the book is one of the, what we're experiencing right now as a community in terms of pragmatism and hyper-individualism and, and, and its dark twin kind of tribalism and, and selfishness is not despite our founding convictions, but actually is the fruition of it. In a sense, we've become successful. And as this logic matures, this logic of maximizing self-interest, we are seeing it's actually unsustainable in so many ways. It's good ideas, but the actual execution of it from the beginning has been somewhat flawed. And so he says, we've, we're, we're failing in different ways. We're struggling because we've triumphed. Now, this is brought into tension, this, this self-interest, in uh, uh, the idea of enlightened self-interest. This is a, a phrase that Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French historian, when he came to America, he wrote a book called Democracy in America. And this idea of enlightened self-interest has been picked up recently by the new atheist, Sam Harris, and others. Uh, but it goes back to Tocqueville, to Tocqueville. He says this, the Americans, on the contrary, are fond of explaining almost all the actions of their lives by the principle of interests rightly understood. They show with complacency how an enlightened regard for themselves constantly prompts them to assist each other and inclines them willingly to sacrifice a portion of their time and property to the welfare of the state. So this idea of enlightened welfare is selfishly we look out for the interests of others, but it's really 
at the core about self-interest. And, and kind of the argument that Deneen and others have made is, this has become, unsa- like, what does this have to do with our lives now? What they're arguing is, it's not aged very well. Matter of fact, it's accelerated over the last 50 years with uh, kind of a global economy and technology and different things. And what it's kind of morphed into now, the way that we can kind of capture the spirit of this now, and it's the, the kind of dark side of this collective pursuit of self-interest, is in the phrase that we all know and probably use tongue-in-cheek every day, you do you. That is the American mantra, you do you. There was a great article by um, a professor of New Testament um, called uh, Why You Do You Left Us Vulnerable to COVID. And in this article, he, he basically points out that like this hyper-individualism that we're experiencing, this, this increasing selfishness that we see um, is, is problematic. And it was probably no more, nowhere more exposed than during COVID, right? I mean, we've all seen the headlines about this person, and we probably said that, they're so selfish. Or there's, it's funny how like both sides are like calling each other selfish. And he says this in the article, we need a worldview that is about more than us. In short, you do you won't work. Indeed, one might argue that our cultural decline over the last 50 years plus has made us exceptionally vulnerable to something like the coronavirus. The problem isn't that we're unprepared scientifically. The problem is that we're unprepared morally. Here's the point. Nothing tests the validity of a worldview like tragedy and suffering. And the coronavirus, as awful and terrible as, as it is, has done at least one good thing. Namely, it, is, it has exposed our culture's commitment to relativism for what it really is, an utterly workable and unsustainable worldview. Some have called this the, this, the, the second pandemic the pandemic of selfishness that's been exposed during coronavirus. Somebody recently quipped that there's no vaccination for selfishness. They were lamenting. That doesn't change. And it's been interesting to watch us as a society without a moral vision. What he's talking about here is so true. Without a moral vision of something other than enlightened self-interest, it's been interesting watching us try to come together to survive a pandemic. Do you remember like the last year, like the first couple of weeks, it's like, we're in this together and people are like chalk arting out on their sidewalks and people are putting up banners and you know stuff in their front yard. And it's like, we're in this together, flatten the curve. And that lasted for what, like three days. And then after we flattened the curve or whatever the first time, uh, we're in this together became, you do you, I'm out of here, you know? And, and this massive politicizing of everything, right? I don't know if you remember like the spring breakers early on, they were just like, I'm gonna go on spring break and I'm gonna do me and I don't care if I get COVID. And everybody's like, <gasps> and then someone's like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, people with COVID, um, knowing they had COVID, knowing they had COVID symptoms, refusing to quarantine, bring, going to work, taking their kids and dropping them off at daycare, knowing they had COVID, the politicizing of mask wearing, vaccination debates. I mean, it's just all around. It's like this swinging from like one side, contempt and shaming of another side and another side reacting to that contempt and shaming by either shaking their fists and saying, you can't tell me what to do or just a sort of like indifference, like that's not affecting me. I mean, one of the most disturbing things I have said in my own heart and I have heard said in our community a lot is this, well, it really doesn't affect me or my family. 
I'm not vulnerable personally. I don't trust the government or I don't trust public health officials or I don't trust the research. Now, there are real concerns that we need to take into account as we think about all of those things. Vaccinations, masking, I'm not saying, we've done a really kind of terrible job about like messaging this and talking about this as a society. But however, what I'm drawing attention to at the core is a deeper spiritual problem underneath that. At the core of that kind of thinking is what, you notice the common word, the common pronoun in all of those? I, me, my family. It, it's, it is a, an appeal to self-interest. I rarely hear, hear people start with, what can I do for you? What can I do for the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable? How can I lay my body down, lay my rights down, lay my preferences down? for the good of others. And of course, we're Americans. It was never gonna work from the beginning. We are a society built on maximizing self-interest. And again, this is nothing new, right? Like we're not the first society in history to be built on self-interest. It has a unique flair and flavor in, in America. But this goes all the way back to like the New Testament. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 3, thousands of years ago. Understand this, that in the last days, and in the last days, just talking about life after Jesus raised from the dead, there will come times of difficulty. And here's what he says. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's an interesting one to throw in there. Arrogant, abusive, or sorry, unholy, heartless. And he goes on and lists all these things. And then he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. To be a lover of self is to have a form, but to be an empty shell. He says, avoid such people. That's the biblical narrative. Theologically, we've been talking about this for centuries. Augustine first said it, and he used this very specific word, incurvitas. Incurvitas say, you may have heard this used before, homo incurvitus in se ipsum, man turning in on himself. That's how he defines sin. Sin is self-love. Sin is turning in on ourselves. Instead of moving outward to look at the other, it is looking inward and being shaped by what's in it for me. Me do me. You do you. Goes back to the dawn of creation, to Adam and Eve. So what my point here is just in saying, like, what is love? It's not enlightened self-interest. We are being shaped, you are being shaped, you're being formed into an image that says love is self-interest. Yes, do nice things for people in as much as it benefits you. That is not Christian love, it's half right. What is authentic Christian love? That takes us back to Paul, back to Galatians. What's interesting is when people talk about the book of Galatians, they often make it about the law. And actually, the central message of the book of Galatians is not about the law. The central message of the book of Galatians is about love. Love is mentioned five times in the book of Galatians. That word love in the book of Galatians is the same word that is used of, uh, throughout the New Testament of Jesus and the disciples. It's the word agape. Agape is not enlightened self-interest. There are four Greek words. This is one of them. It's a very specific word. So in order to talk about love, we have to recognize we use love in all kinds of weird ways. Like we talk about loving our spouses and loving graders. So it, 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 but the Greeks had very specific words for things. 
And Paul draws our attention to this. Notice in chapter five, verse six, we read this earlier. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul says at the end of the day, what matters is faith working through love. And what does faith working through love look like? Go back to chapter two, verse 20. He defines it for us. Love is not just a word that we get to fill with content and meaning according to however we think of love, some sentimental love or whatever, you know, groovy thoughts about each other. Chapter two, verse 12, 20, he says this. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul never talks about love without talking about Christ, without talking about specifically crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. So he's gonna tie these things together. Who loved me and gave himself for me. The faithfulness of Christ in laying down his life, becoming a human being, laying down his life, sacrificing himself, giving himself on the cross becomes the power and the pattern for love. The faithfulness of Christ on our behalf, his faithfulness to God, and the love that he showed towards us is faith working through love. So Paul wants to bring together faith and love and then our ethics. He wants to bring together the cross and the spirit. The faithfulness of God towards us in Christ becomes then the call and the invitation to entrust ourselves to God and to love others, to love God and to love others. So love has a specific content, a specific character, a source. It's Jesus. And what he's saying is Jesus fulfills the law by loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving others as he loves, him, as, as he loves himself. And so now as those who have the spirit of God, we are manifesting that same love in our relationships with one another. All of these traits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, these are not just like random Greek virtues that Paul pulled out of some like virtue table uh, from classical Greek. These are meant to display for us and be illustrative of, not comprehensive, but illustrative of the character of Jesus himself. Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. Jesus is peace. Jesus is kindness. So you could say we are given the spirit of Christ to publicly manifest the character of Christ that is taking root in us internally. So at the root, as we are coming to know Jesus, the character of Christ, the love of Christ is controlling us, Paul says. And then it begins to show itself publicly in our relationships with each other. That's why the fruit of the Spirit, it, please, please humor me during the series by not using the plural of fruit. It's not fruits of the Spirit. The word is fruit. It's singular. You know why it's singular? Because it's all supposed to go together. Love, many scholars have argued, love is actually the primary driving concern of Paul. And then all the other words here, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, amplify love and kind of are the outworking of love. He's specifying this is what love looks like. It looks like you being kind in a world of harshness. It looks like you being a peacemaker in a world of division. It looks like you being 
gentle in a time of coercion and violence. It looks like you being self-controlled in a moment of self-fulfillment. So love is the primary disposition of the Christian life, and it is a love that is modeled on and powered by the love of Christ. It's what we would call, we've, called, we've used this word before, um, one scholar calls cruciform love. I love that word. It's a cruciform love. It's shaped by the pattern of the cross. Here's the way Michael Gorman explains that in his book called Cruciformity. He says, the law of Christ, which is a word that Paul uses throughout the book of Galatians, is the narrative pattern of self-giving, others regarding love of the crucified Messiah Jesus. This law then is the master story which also becomes the community's rule of life. So I love like three patterns that we see in the cruciform love of Jesus that I think define love for us as way more than uh, enlightened self-interest. It's characterized by self-giving. Jesus gave up his life. True, authentic love cannot be coerced. It cannot be compelled. It has to be voluntary. Jesus laid down his life. Nobody takes my life, I lay it down. It's chosen and non-coercive. It is self-sacrificing. It's a costly act where we lay down our lives sometimes. We lay down our reputations. We lay down our preferences and our rights. And again, this is where it starts to come up against American culture. We are a rights-driven culture. And again, I'm for rights. I'm for the Imago Dei, right? Like we, 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 that's a good thing. But when taken to an extreme and I am all about demanding my rights and standing on my rights, I'm missing the point of love, which says, Jesus says, get laid down. And that's the last piece of this. It is a self-emptying. I renounce, and Philippians 2 says, Paul says, I renounce, and Jesus renounced, and you should renounce your rights, your status, your power, your privileges. And you redirect that for the good of others. And this, isn't this what the Bible teaches us? John says it this way, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Whatever love is, it has to be rooted in who God is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perpetuation, to, to pay for our sins. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. After he's talking about love right before that, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, so it's not stop looking to your own interests, but stop elevating your own interests to be central. Stop being preoccupied with your own interests first also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Are you getting the connection yet? I mean, it just, he never talks about love without talking about Jesus. And to talk about Jesus is to talk about love. And one of the acid tests for how we know we love Jesus is that we are trying to love others the way that we have been loved. It's really that simple, and yet, like, I already feel like a failure. So what does it look like then as we close here over the next few minutes? 
what does this mean for us? What does this actually look like for us to live this way? The call for us, I would argue, is not just to do nice things randomly. (laughs) I think the imitation is much bigger than that. What Paul is saying here in the fruit of the Spirit is he's inviting us not to just do loving acts, but to become love itself. To take on the Spirit and to have the Spirit dwell in us is to become love. But here's the thing. That love, though it's a gift, it's a paradox, it's a gift, it also has to be cultivated. So he says, bear the fruit of the Spirit. And you think about how fruit grows. There's a paradox of grace and grit, of active work and passive receptivity, of God's power and human practice, right? And we know that God's, it's not equal. God's action is primary. God's action is the most important thing happening. Apart from God's power, it's impossible. But God's power does not let us off the hook. It doesn't negate our responsibility to cultivate. If you're growing a garden, you don't just like stand back and say, well, God will grow this garden with some magic beanstalk. You know, I'll just kind of put some stuff out here and God will magically arrange it. Now, what do you do? You like, you bre- I'm not a gardener, but like you, you break up the soil, you, you, you fertilize it, you plant the seed, you fertilize it, you water it. But ultimately, like what? You don't control the growth. We live in the Midwest. It could snow next week. And your gardens, your little urban garden's dead. That's the same thing in our spirituality. We, we can create the conditions. We can, we can have these practices, but apart from the power of God, it's nothing. But if we have the power of God and we're not seeking to cultivate the earth, we're not seeking to cultivate our hearts, cultivate our relationships, just like nature, they will devolve. They will fall apart. Entropy kicks in and we have wild things growing up. And that's what's happened with some of us. We haven't cultivated the garden of our hearts. We haven't cultivated our practices. Maybe because we didn't see that growing up. Maybe you've been wounded. Maybe you experienced trauma as a kid. All of us have in different ways. Maybe you grew up in a church where the the main message was hate your enemies. Define your enemies and do everything you can to destroy them. And you've never actually seen love embodied. And maybe you have, and you're just like, no, I really hadn't thought about that a whole lot. Maybe you grew up in a perfectly loving home and you just chose to rebel against that. But here's the thing. It's both and. Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God does this work. We don't create it. We can't manufacture it. But 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, pursue love. Pursue it. Eagerly desire it. Don't just feel warm feelings about it. Think about it. Blog about it. Tweet about it. Instagram about it. Pursue it. In other words, do it. You must pursue it. It's not going to magically happen to you. You do not magically drift into becoming a loving person. And I can tell you that because I am the worst. I wish this was the matrix and you just plug the thing into the back of your head, download love. It doesn't work that way. So what does it look like to cultivate that? Let me just, we're like out of time. Let me just give you three practical things. First, we must abide in God's love, Jesus says. We cannot give to others what we've not experienced ourselves. John 15, five, I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide means to dwell. It means to make your home in God's love. Abide in my love, Jesus says. 
build your home, rest, organize your life around my love. We must be transformed by the love of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice, his self-giving must become internalized by us if we're going to offer love to other people. You cannot offer anything other than enlightened self-interest apart from Jesus. And here's the thing. Deep down at the level of our core identity, I have found in counseling dozens and hundreds of people that many of us, even if we say we believe in God and we say we believe in the cross and we say we believe in God's love, we struggle every day in our identity to actually believe it in our bones. Because of trauma, because of sin, because of suffering, all kinds of reasons. But but my point is we say it, but our lives reflect something different. We feel like we have to earn God's love. We feel like we have to put on airs with other people. We do things that are selfish all the time. Some of us do it because we have too high a view of ourselves and we need some humility. Some of us do it because we have too low a view of ourselves and we hate ourselves and we can't believe that God could actually love someone as terrible as us. And we walk in all kinds of shame. You must learn to receive God's love in what one author calls an undefended state. No shame, no guilt, completely vulnerable. When you receive God's love in the midst of your shame, your anger, your lust, your loneliness, your addictions, when you see that God loves that person, not some future version of you, not some cleaned up version of you, but the you that you actually are, you are set free by that love. And that's a lifelong process. And it's not something that you do when you walk an aisle or go through confirmation or baptize as a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 35-year-old. And now we're good. It's like, no, man, like we need that reminder every day. Like the objective evidence of that is the cross of Jesus. But subjectively, it has to be applied like a treatment every single day. I must wake up and practice again, receiving God's love. Though I don't think he does, though I don't believe that anybody else in the world loves me and I live under this narrative of of abandonment and scarcity, I open up and I hear again, God loves me. I have to meditate on that. I have to let that transform my imagination. More than anything else for me, I have to feel that. I believe it with my head, but I don't often feel it here. And so I have to bring those thoughts and feelings before God, and I have to worship, and I have to sing, and I have to come together with you guys and be reminded of that together on Sundays. And I have to be reminded of that as I take walks with Adam Ringo and Nate Dunleavy and other people. I have to be reminded God loves you. A great exercise if you want to just practice this this week. Take Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Spend five minutes in the morning just letting this kind of wash over you. Paul says, I pray for you. How does he pray for the church? That you'd be strengthened in your inner person, that by God's Spirit, He would help you to what? Know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's not less than knowledge, but it's so much more than just propositional truths that it has to get down and be internalized in the core of your being. Spend five minutes a day with that, 10 minutes a day with that, 30 minutes a day with that. Abide in God's love. That's what wholeheartedness means. I am receiving that love. And out of the overflow of what God's doing in my own heart, I am now trying to love you.
imperfectly. Second and third, real simple, attuned to the needs of others. Abide in God's love, and as you're abiding in God's love, look around you. Start, by the way, with the people who live with you. I'm amazed at how many people have such a reputation for being loving outside their home, and when you talk to their spouse and their children and their roommates, there's just a huge disconnect. Wake up each day and reflect on like tomorrow, just like how much time do you spend thinking about yourself? A lot. I mean, it's the first thing I do in the morning. It's a pretty regular habit for me. First up in the morning, last before bed at night, how am I doing? What do I need? What am I gonna do today? I start thinking about my task list, emails start coming in. I'm reading the, you know, the newspaper, trying to figure out what's going on in the world. What would it look like to start each day just asking God to open up your eyes to the needs of others? I mean, the idea of attunement is like a musical thing, right? Like, like if you heard of one instrument of tune in an orchestra, it's just so like nerve wracking. It's, it's, it's resonating with other people, being in harmony with other people. Looking around at your roommates and saying, what do they need today? How can I love them well? Looking at your spouse, what do they need today? How can I love them well? First up in the morning, what, am I, what does my MC need of me today? What does the church need from me today? What, is, what do my neighbors who don't know Jesus need from me today? How can I not be preoccupied with my own interests today? But truly like Jesus thinks about me, delights in me, welcomes me, how can I do that for others today? Then thirdly, we act on it. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk or tweet or Facebook posts. I'd love to see more of that, by the way, on Facebook. <laughs> not just in thoughts and warm feelings and aspirations and goals and objectives and KPIs, but actually doing it. I wanna encourage you to think of small everyday acts, not heroic things, not like, hey, I'm gonna go sell everything I have tomorrow. I mean, okay, if you wanna do that, great. But why don't you just start small? Mother Teresa said, love is small acts done with greatness. Small acts, finding ways. I mean, I'm gonna give you this list right here. You can take a picture of it if you want. This is what the New Testament talks about, this last slide here, of all the different practical ways that we can love each other. These are not heroic acts. These are everyday things that arise, opportunities for us in our relationships with each other every day to pursue forgiveness. How can I resist bitterness towards this person and offer forgiveness starting in my own heart? Let's just start there. Can I pray for this person instead of hating them and like tweet storming them and like, you know, like internally, you know, cursing them? How can I take a step towards reconciliation today in a small way? How can I share Jesus with people? Let them know God loves them. How can I maintain sexual integrity? That's one of the ways Paul says we love each other is we love our bodies and we pursue wholeness in our bodies. We don't abuse or exploit them. Generosity, I mean, all these things are just small things God invites us to do. I just wanna encourage you to think about that, reflect on that this week. What would it look like for me to abide in God's love, attune myself to the needs of others, and then actually act on what the Spirit reveals to me? Reflect on that with your spouse, 
this week? Today. Honey, what would it look like for me to love you well as Christ has loved me? To your roommate, what what would it look like for me to love you well today? In your missional community, in your discipleship groups, what would it look like for us to be a counterculture of self-giving love, laying down our lives for one another as Christ has laid down his life for us? This is the invitation of God for us as a community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us. You have given us the power and the pattern for what it looks like to lay down our lives for one another. We pray that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, God, would you reveal to us the ways in which we have been formed and shaped by a culture of enlightened self-interest, of selfishness, which really is just another way of saying the works of the flesh, envy, division, rivalry, all these things. They just get institutionalized and normalized, and then we start to think that this is real life, and it's not. So God, open up our eyes. Holy Spirit, show us what it looks like to live, to bear fruit, to allow your life of love that's been planted as a seed inside of us to be cultivated, nurtured, and to grow and to become fruit in our lives in terms of how we interact with those around us, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our children, our grandchildren, our grandparents, our cousins, the vulnerable, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, our enemies. God, you call us to love our enemies. Teach us what it looks like. It feels impossible, but God, we know that all things are possible in you, with you, as we are united by faith to Jesus. We come into communion with you. We know that you make these things possible for us by the power of your spirit. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.